Gang, it's good to see you. Let's all stand together. Let's all stand. Lord, we're here for you. Receive our worship, Christ Jesus. It's safe to say this season for a lot of us has been so stressful. 
filled with anxiety, fatigue, maybe in levels that you've just never even experienced before. What we would like to do this morning is strengthen you, strengthen you with the Word of God. And so it's a song we've been singing for a number of years called Always. And we wanted to connect it with Psalm 3. So essentially we're going to sing, we're going to lead you in reading, singing of Psalm 3. And we trust and pray that you would continue to worship the Lord, meet with Him, receive this as the Word of the Lord for your hearts to provide you rest, confidence, and strength this morning. Amen. My foes are many, they rise against me, but I will hold my ground. I will not fear war, I will not fear the storm, my help is on the way, my help is on the way. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying, oh my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around.
dear God, we thank you that you are always by our side. And only because of your grace and mercy, we became your family. What a great joy to be part of your salvation plan. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
name is Ben Tucker, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to lead this uh, communion with you together. Partaking in communion together as a church is a significant way that we're called to remember Christ and all that he did for us. As we move into this time, I would like to pull out a few thoughts from one verse. Verse 1 Corinthians 11.24 that can help highlight some wonderful encouragement that partaking in communion together provides us. 1 Corinthians 11.24, Jesus says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're all familiar with this uh, sentence that Jesus states, but let's dig into this line by line. Jesus starts by saying, This is my body. It's easy to miss this. Communion is a reminder and celebration of the incarnation. Norm spoke on this a couple weeks ago. Jesus was the eternal word that became flesh and dwelt among us. God of all creation became human. He experienced pain, sorrow, rejection, and ultimately, death. His body was given on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 5 prophesies, He was pierced for our transgressions. transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As we participate in communion, we remember the wonder of the incarnation as Christ came to earth as the perfect, sinless one to take our punishment and reverse the curse of sin. Next, Jesus says, which is for you? This is my body, which is for you. The love of God is powerful and it is personal. It's easy to overlook the fullness and love of God and think of it as one that is absent of justice and is simply grace. It is grace, but it's both justice and grace. Christ's sacrifice for us us on the cross and his propitiation for our sin, taking our place, shows us God's objection to our sin, but also simultaneously his deep love for us. The Son of God, one of the persons of the Trinity, became our substitute, my substitute, your substitute. He took the sin of me, of us, upon himself, of mankind. Next, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It seems surprising that as Christians, we need an act like communion to remember Christ. But we can be so forgetful, I know I can, in my daily life, of the story of Christ, the narrative of his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus instructs us to remember him with a very tangible and physical reminder, eating and drinking, something that most of us do every day the bread and the cup. We partake in communion together, and as we do that, we should ponder and appreciate Christ, his heart to save us sinners, and how he reconciled us to himself through his blood shed on the cross on our behalf. We are instructed to remember the gospel story. Now remember, communion is for Christians, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sin. If you have not put your faith in Christ alone, please do not partake in communion, but I would would urge you to listen and talk to someone about putting your faith in Jesus today. Now, it sounded like some of you were already getting ready, but take your cup and just peel that wafer free by uh, removing the clear level on top. As Christians, we are instructed to treat communion with reverence and practice it in a spirit of self-examination and humility. Let's take a few moments with individual prayer to thank the Lord for our salvation and redemption by his body and blood on the cross, as well as to make our hearts right before him before we partake.
Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Peeling back the next layer on the cup. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Lord, we thank you for your work on the cross and what that means to us. Thank you for this tangible reminder of the fact that you gave us your body and that we are to do this in remembrance of you. I pray that this would be something that we continue to remember through the day, through the week, and that you would be given glory in our obedience. In Jesus' name. Let's stay together.
Amen. Praise you. Praise your name, Lord. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your mercy, for the gift of salvation. How awesome it is, Lord, to worship you for all that you have done for us. Jesus, our Savior, our Master, our King, our everything. In your name we pray these things. The church says amen together. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be back with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. I had a wonderful drive over from Cambridge, the blue sky overhead, the mist in the valleys, flocks of geese everywhere. I even spied four deer out in the middle of a farmer's field. I don't know what they were doing in the middle of the hunt season, aren't we? They should have been in the bush somewhere, but there they were. Beautiful. And uh, just east of Woodstock, three balloons, hot air balloons, and uh, very picturesque, very beautiful. This is a rare treat, isn't it? Temperatures in the 20s in November. I feel like I'm back in Texas, but uh, make sure you get out there and you enjoy it while it lasts because you know as well as I do, it isn't going to last. Are you familiar with the name Ernest Shackleton? Famous, or maybe not so famous, British explorer. Ernest Shackleton. In 1914, so a couple of years ago now, he set sail for Antarctica, and his goal was to be the first to traverse the continent of Antarctica on foot. So start on one side, traverse right over the South Pole to the other side, and so he was in his ship Endeavour, with his crew, I think they were still five or 600 miles from the shore of Antarctica, and their ship got stuck in the ice. So they had little choice, very few options to them. So they, uh, all of their gear overboard, they got the lifeboats onto the ice, and they set up camp because the ice was crushing the endeavor, and they know that ship was going to sink eventually. So there they were on the ice flow for, I don't know, it was maybe five or six months, with the lifeboats, with all their supplies, camping out. Eventually the ice melted enough that they could get in the lifeboats and make the long, arduous 500-mile journey or whatever it was to the shores of Antarctica. And when Ernest Shackleton was interviewed a little while after and asked, well, of that... Uh, of that adventure, there's an understatement, what was the most trying? And he quickly replied, it was the months of darkness. From the middle of May to the end of July, you never see the sun in Antarctica. And so for close to three months, they were in absolute, utter darkness. And he said the darkness was overwhelming. It was crushing, disorienting, and unbelievably discouraging. I'm going to hazard a guess that none of you have ever been through an incident like that. I know I certainly haven't. But I'm also going to guess that many of us have been through something which closely approximates it. And I am referring to a dark night of the soul. I am referring to those seasons in life, perhaps brief, perhaps prolonged, when we have found ourselves in the midst of a valley 
in which the shadows cast a debilitating aura. And it is darkness all around. Chuck Swindoll writes in one of his books, when our spirits are high, we're flooded with pleasant thoughts, hope, optimism, and expectation. But when our spirits are low, with our jagged barnacles of disappointment and discouragement exposed, we entertain feelings of raw disillusionment. We hide our condition with love to hear, right? I love to speak its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. And so that was our business last Sunday. It continues to be our business today. And Lord willing, next week we will return to this business at hand, fixing our eyes upon Jesus so that we can really echo the words of the hymn writer. There is, we can say it meaningfully, there is a name I love to hear. I love to speak its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. And we are doing this on the basis of Matthew chapters 3 and 4. And so you can turn there with me. Today we're into the fourth chapter. Last week we camped out on the third chapter. And if you were here or if you were watching online, you will recall that in Matthew chapter 3 we read of this lone voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And his message is straightforward. His message is unequivocal, uncompromising, hitting you between the eyes. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he is baptizing sinners in the Jordan River, the Lord Jesus, the perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, comes near to John. He is baptized in the Jordan River, not on account of his own sin, but because he is identifying as the public representative of his people. And as he emerges from the waters, we catch a glorious glimpse of our God. Behold, our God is one. He is the great I Am. He is the one who is above all things, through all things, and in all things. And yet within this one God, one being, one indivisible essence, there are three eternal relations. There is the Father, unbegotten. And there is the Son, who is eternally begotten. And there is the Spirit, who is eternally spirated. And we are introduced to this triune God as the Lord Jesus emerges from the Jordan River. There we have the Son of God. The Son of God incarnate. The Son of God made flesh, Jesus Christ himself. The heavens are opened. And then we catch a glimpse of the Spirit of God who descends in the likeness of a dove and comes to rest upon the Lord Jesus, anointing him for his ministry. And then we hear the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, immediately, what happens? Follow along as I read the first 11 verses for us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, 
The Lord Jesus turns to Deuteronomy chapter 8, very significant. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, and now he turns, still in the book of Deuteronomy, but chapter 6, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written still in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. And so what are we doing? What's our business this morning? We are fixing our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. You're forgetting about the last week. All right? You're forgetting about elections south of the border. If that's your cup of tea. You're forgetting about COVID-19. You're forgetting about issues at work, problems in the home. You forget, just, just put it all aside. Put it in the bottom drawer just for a moment. And we are realigning ourselves. We've come here this day. We are engaged in worship of the triune God. And we are fixing our gaze, the eyes of our souls, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to that end, notice four things about Jesus. Okay? Here we go. Number one. Jesus is the last Adam. He is the last Adam. It might strike you as strange at first. Stick with me and begin by noticing, noticing the dissimilarity between Adam and Jesus. Adam was in the garden. Where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness. Adam was feasting. In a place of plenty, the Lord Jesus is what? He is fasting. Adam was surrounded by tame animals pre-fall. We read in Mark's narrative, Mark's account of the temptation, that Jesus was surrounded by wild animals. Adam had every advantage, every advantage, and the Lord Jesus had every disadvantage, the dissimilarity between these two scenarios. Who appears on the scene in the garden and in the wilderness? He's named in three different ways in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. He is the tempter. He is the devil. He is Satan. And he came and he tempted Adam in the garden. And he comes now and he tempts Jesus in the wilderness Continue to notice the dissimilarities between Adam and Jesus. Adam chose not to delight in God. Jesus chose to delight in God. Adam chose to ignore God's word. Jesus chose to follow God's word. Adam disobeyed and failed. Jesus 
praise God, obeyed and triumphed. He is the last Adam. Why do we need to hear this? Why is this of any particular interest to us? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, as by one man's, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who is that one man? That's Adam. In the preceding verse, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, we read that through one trespass, just one, folks, through one trespass, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Who is that one man? It's Jesus. Again, in Romans 5.18, you can flip there and you can read it for yourself. Yes, through one trespass. So this is Adam in the garden, tempted of the devil, he sinned. By one trespass, there resulted condemnation to all men. And then Paul goes on to say in that verse, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life for all men. And so the Apostle Paul there in Romans chapter 5, he is establishing the fact that to understand human history and to understand God's plan of redemption, we need to come to grips with the fact that there are two principal individuals. There are two men. The first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus, who are public representatives. They are federal heads. And God entered into a covenant with Adam in the garden as the head of all humanity. And when Adam sinned, guess what? Whether you like it or not, and whether you can stomach it or not, in God's reckoning, you sinned. Adam's sin is your sin, friends. And Adam's curse is your curse. And Adam's condemnation is your condemnation and my condemnation. You see, three strikes, you're out. The first strike against us is original sin. We are guilty of Adam's original transgression. Second strike is this. Because Adam sinned, what happened to his nature? He lost the image of God. And every individual who's ever been born has what? Inherited the flesh. Corrupt human nature from Adam. That's strike two. And guess what? As a result of this corrupt human nature, we sin constantly in word, thought, and deed. That's strike three. Strike three, you're out. This is deadly. Oh, sin is deadly. Through one man's trespass, just one. I know this is going to offend some of you. There didn't have to be any more sins for God to condemn the entire human race. That's how serious sin is. It only took one. It took Adam's solitary trespass as the public representative and federal head of the entire human race. But it's not the end of the story. There is a last Adam, and his name is Jesus. And there he is in the wilderness. And there we see him resisting the devil's temptation. And there we see the evidence that he has come to fulfill that covenant. There we see the clear evidence that he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That which Adam failed miserably to do, and that which you and I fail miserably to do each and every day of our lives. And therefore, through one act of righteousness, his entire life, a perfect life lived. 
and a substitutionary death and atonement upon Calvary's cross offered through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life for all men. Who are the all men? Paul makes it clear in his epistle to the Romans. He doesn't leave us in any doubt. Who are the all men? Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus, receives the Lord Jesus, becomes one with him by the Holy Spirit through faith. And by virtue of that union, he is now our public representative. He is now our federal head. And God reckons to us that one act of righteousness. He reckons to us that perfect life lived. And he considers the debt paid in full because the Lord Jesus paid for the penalty for our, of our sin upon Calvary's cross. Oh, we need to hear this. There is a last Adam. A preacher, one preacher he wrote in a book, this is a few years ago. Listen closely to this. It was a crowded morning in Starbucks. The young man smiled behind the counter and said to me, how are you? For years, I've given a particular response to that question. I do it as a way of preaching the gospel to myself. I've also found it to be an effective opening for sharing the gospel. And so I used the words again that morning. Here they are. Better than I deserve. It wasn't what the young man expected to hear. Immediately, the guy began challenging my self-assessment. He was concerned that I lacked self-esteem. I looked around. The entire place seemed to be listening to my explanation. I told the young man, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. Conversation was ever so brief. When the moment was over, people around me gradually returned to whatever had earlier occupied their minds and hearts, still sadly unaware, I suspect, of how much they also need a Savior. My friend, you have three strikes against you. You're out. We are condemned in the sight of God. Do we appreciate how much we need a Savior? Do we understand what a stranglehold? sin has on us and what it means to be in bondage to sin and to the consequences of sin. I fear we become a bit too familiar with our own sin, right? Uh, a few years back now, I was preaching at a conference in Auckland, New Zealand. And afterwards, Allison and I, we decided to drive to a place called Rotorua because we had friends there, friends we had met earlier, years ago, in another place of the world. So we wanted to go visit them. And so I asked one of the brothers at this conference in, in Auckland at the church, okay, Rotorua, here's the directions I put together. How does that look? He said, yeah, you'll find your way there. And he says, also, just remember, you'll smell it before you see it. <laughs> what? You'll smell it before you see it. Rotorua, New Zealand. Why is that? Because it's famous for its hot springs, high sulfur content. And the place reeks. And the smell and you drive up, you open the door, and the first thing that hits you and almost knocks you over is the smell of sulfur. 24 hours later, what do you smell? Nothing. Quickly become accustomed to it. You simply, you just merely get used to it. I'm afraid at times that's what we're like with our sin, isn't it? It just doesn't startle us anymore. anymore. The envy, the anger, the bitterness, the lust, the imagination and the muck and the mire. Oh, do we really see our sin before a holy God? And do we understand just how desperately we need a Savior? 
And do we understand that when we come to this Savior brokenhearted in poverty of spirit, oh, that he is so gentle with us. We saw that in the Lord's Supper communion. Were you paying attention? The Lord's Supper? What's going on there? Yes, this powerful reminder, visible reminder of the body of the Lord Jesus broken upon Calvary's cross. And the purchasing price of our redemption, His blood flowing forth. Powerful reminder. But it's even more than that, our friend. If we lean in close, we hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us at the supper. We hear Him gently saying to us, Look at my righteousness, not your unrighteousness. Look at my obedience, not your disobedience. Look at my merit, not your guilt, my strength, not your weakness, my sufferings, not your failures, my faithfulness, not your unfaithfulness. He is the last Adam. And through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life for all who come to him and believe in him. Oh, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have to see him. We have to see indeed that the Lord Jesus is the last Adam. Here's the second thing I want us to observe concerning Jesus in this text. He is the true Israel. Now, this is a little heady, all right? We'll proceed a little slowly, cautiously, but it is wonderfully pastoral. Jesus is the true Israel. And so we just compared Adam and Jesus and the dissimilarity between the two and the significance of that dissimilarity for us. Now compare the nation of Israel and Jesus and the similarity between the two. God brought Israel out of Egypt, did he not? We know the story. It's the Exodus. God brought Jesus out of Egypt. It's right back there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. God at the Red Sea saw that Israel was baptized into Moses. Well, in chapter 3, verse 13, at the Jordan River, we see that Jesus is baptized by John as the public representative of his people. The nation of Israel was led by that pillar of cloud and fire into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. The nation of Israel, while in the wilderness, was tested for 40 years. And what do we read in our text, verse 2? The Lord Jesus, while in the wilderness, is tested for 40 days. There is this parallel similarity between the nation of Israel and Jesus, and it is intentional on the part of Matthew. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to chapter 5, you know, you, we see this comparison. We see it right through the book. I mean, after the nation of Israel goes through the Red Sea, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the law, does he not? Well, in chapter 5, verse 1, where's the Lord Jesus? He's on the mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he expounds the law. And this comparison, this parallel continues throughout the entire book. Why? Matthew wants us to understand something. He wants us to see something. He wants us to get that the Lord Jesus repeats Israel's history in his own experience. 
And he wants us to get that Israel, just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, so too was 40, Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, both tempted of the devil. And just as Israel came up out of Egypt, passed through the waters, the Red Sea, into the wilderness, so too the Lord Jesus was brought up out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness. There is this parallel. And he doesn't want us to miss it. Why do we need to hear this? We need to hear this because Matthew's point is clear. The Lord Jesus is the true Israel. The Lord Jesus is the true Son of God. The Father himself has declared it at the end of chapter 3. At the conclusion of the baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Yes, he is the beloved Son by virtue of who he is in his deity. And he is the beloved Son on the basis of what he accomplishes in his humanity. And so into the wilderness he goes. And where Israel failed miserably, the Lord Jesus triumphs wonderfully. And it is no coincidence that he quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Because what's the context in the book of Deuteronomy? It is Israel's wilderness wandering. And as they are tested and they are tempted, what do they do? They complain and they complain and they complain. And they murmur. And they say, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. And they doubt and they question the very goodness of God. But in marked contrast, we have the Lord Jesus in the wilderness citing these texts and demonstrating that he is the true Israel and therefore the true Son of God. Why is that of such encouragement to us? Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Because you see, the Lord Jesus, as the true Israel, is the heir of all the Abrahamic promises. And when we become one with Christ through faith, we become Abraham's offspring. We become Abraham's heirs. And all of those promises are now ours. We can sum them up, summarize them in three great promises. The first is this, a renewed body and soul. It's coming, brothers and sisters, a renewed body and soul perfected in the likeness of Christ. A renewed, regenerated heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells supremely and definitively. And the third, the vision of God in the face of Christ. As we behold his glory and we are like him for we shall see him as he is. Oh, we need to hear this. We need to be reminded of these promises daily. This life is difficult. You don't need me to tell you that. My wife, Allison, we were out walking this past week, and we were, well, we had a bit of a pity party. (laughs) We were just talking about how difficult life is getting the older we get. I think it's getting more and more difficult because we have more and more memories, more and more scars. And more and more causes for sorrow and pain and disappointment. I mean, even now, this past week, I've been anticipating it. The American, American Thanksgiving is just a couple weeks away. 
And as I anticipate American Thanksgiving, my mind goes back four years ago, the day after American Thanksgiving, the dreaded phone call close to midnight at night. And a young boy, 12 years of age, in the church that I was pastoring, four-wheeler accident, can you come? A couple hours away, you're out at a ranch, and he's in an accident, it's not looking good. I grabbed another staff member from the church, and off we went into the night, and uh, made it to the hospital, and uh, he was gone. He was gone. You walk through the doors of the emergency room, and there is three younger siblings, mom and dad, grandpa and grandma. And I said, how long, Lord? How long? It just, this life at times is more than we can bear, is it not? Maybe this past week, some of you know Tim Challies, right? And uh, his son Nick passing down there in Louisville. I got another email this past week of a couple in, back in Fort Worth, Texas, tragically killed in a, in a car accident. Uh, this, this life is fragile, folks. If you don't know that, you're, you're, you got your head in the sand. <laughs> this life is fragile. And this life is painful. And at times, unbearably painful. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. Jesus Christ has inherited all the promises given to Abraham. We are one with Jesus Christ through faith. We are, therefore, Abraham's offspring. Those promises, therefore, are ours. And we know, and I know it doesn't feel like it at times, this life, it is passing and it is fleeting. And our hope is what? Our hope is in the promises of God. A new body, renewed body, renewed soul. A renewed cosmos, universe. And the beatific vision when we will see the Lord Jesus as he is. There's the only way to manage through. There's the only way to bear up under the crushing weight and burden of tragedy. It is to remember that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, an heir, according to promise. Here's the third thing I want you to see about the Lord Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter of our faith. What exactly is going on in the temptation? How are we to interpret this? What's transpiring here? We need to set it in a bigger context. And we need to remind ourselves that the Father has made certain promises to the Lord Jesus. You can go back and read the book of Psalms. We can read the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And we read of these promises. And all of these promises concern what's going to happen after the death of Christ. They concern his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. The Father makes all of these wonderful and glorious promises to Jesus. And until the accomplishment of those promises, he is to live trusting in his Father. The devil arrives on the scene. What does he do? What is his goal? His goal in the threefold temptation is very simple. And remember this, he is not original. It was his goal with Adam. It was his goal with Israel. His goal with the Lord Jesus. And it is still his goal with you. His goal was simply this. This, to make the Lord Jesus question, doubt his Father's goodness. You're hungry. Why isn't he providing for you? Just speak to these stones and turn them into bread. Let's take a little trip to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down 
I mean, look at, look at what these past 40 days have been like. And look at what you're facing in these three years of ministry culminating in Calvary's cross. Throw yourself down and let's really see if the Father cares for you. Let's see how good he is. And oh, the cross. Oh, the anguish of soul you're going to go through. And the unbelievable torment and pain. You can avoid it all. If your father really loved you and he was good, why would he put you through that? Just bow down now and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. We don't need to get into the nitty-gritty of the three temptations. They are all designed with one particular end in view. It is to make Jesus doubt his father's goodness. It is to make him doubt the promises that the father has given to the Lord Jesus concerning what will transpire after the cross. We need to hear this. We need to hear this because as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, we are called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the greatest believer who ever lived, who for the joy that was set before him, what was the joy set before him? All the Father's promises culminating in his glorification through our salvation. For the joy that was set before him, well, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, look to Jesus, brother, sister. The devil handles you in precisely the same way he handled Jesus. He comes at you exactly the same way in which he came at the Lord Jesus. The Father has given us certain promises, hasn't he? He has promised us that he will preserve us through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last day. And he has promised until then to work all things for our good. That is our spiritual good. But we are not immune to the ravages of this world. We are not immune to the consequences of the curse. And we suffer at times unspeakable things in this life. And the devil will come and he will whisper in the recesses of your mind, mm -hmm. if God were good, why are you going through this? If God is who he says he is and he is your loving heavenly father, then please explain this. And he comes tempting us just as he tempted Jesus of old. And we are to look to Jesus, fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of faith. And he shows us now how to overcome temptation. We're to look to the joy. We're to fix our eyes on those promises. And we're to live now in the reality of those promises. And it's why the Lord Jesus says to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Here's how I'm living. My eyes are fixed on every word that comes from the Father. That is the object of my faith. That is the object of my focus. And I know what he has promised after that crucifixion. And I am prepared to endure your temptation. I am prepared to endure the opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I am prepared to endure the indifference of my own disciples. I am prepared to endure living in this fallen world surrounded by fallen creatures and weariness and, and everything else. And I am prepared to endure such torment of soul and body upon Calvary's cross because I'm looking to the joy that is set before me. It's the only way you're going to make it through, brother. It's the only way you're going to make it through. 
You know, it's, uh, it's Peter, right? I love Peter because I can identify with Peter so much. <laughs> Peter's there. You know, you know the scene. It's one of my favorite stories as a boy. There they are. They're in the boat, the disciples, right, in the midst of the sea. And Jesus comes walking on the sea in the midst of the storm. And what does Peter do? He jumps over and he's walking on the water to the Lord Jesus. Then what does Peter do? He takes his eyes off of Christ. And what does he begin to fixate on? The waves. And he begins to sink. If we are fixated on the problems in this life, I'm not minimizing them nor denying them. If we're fixated on politics, if we're three hours on social media, and if we are just immersed in the problems of this world and all that is going on, the devil will come and he will whisper, is God really good? And we will begin to fixate on the waves and we will begin to sink. Do you love the Lord Jesus? I love the Lord Jesus. He's far, he's far more gentle than I am. What does he do with Peter? Walk over, hold his head underwater. Well, this will teach you a lesson. Lay the boots to him. What does he do? Oh, he's, he's so gentle and meek and lowly. Over he goes, stretches out his hand, and he grabs Peter and brings him back up. That's what he does for us, friends. He's been there. He's been through it. And he is the author that is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Here's the fourth thing we need to see about the Lord Jesus in these verses. He is the great high priest. Now work through this one with me, all right? You need to think big. He is the great high priest. Back into verse 1. It's fascinating. Then Jesus, off he went into the wilderness, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's verse 1. That's how the temptation opens. How does the temptation end? Verse 11, the devil leaves him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, we are, we are getting into the depths of Christology, theology, doctrine here, but it's important for us to understand this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Amen? I hope you're all orthodox. He is fully God and he is fully man in one person, right? The Lord Jesus, Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2, the Son of God emptied himself, right? When he took to himself the form of man, became a servant, lived on this earth and offered himself up upon Calvary's cross. He did not empty himself, divest himself of his deity. Jesus is fully God. He humbled himself by assuming our humanity. And during, please understand this, I know this is heady and there's something of a mystery here, but during his time here on earth, during his period of his humiliation, he did not exercise his divine prerogatives. He is anointed by the Spirit in the Jordan River. It is the Spirit that leads him into the wilderness. He lives as a man in dependence upon the Spirit. And the 40 days in the wilderness are such an ordeal that at the end of it, what is required? This angelic host who come and they minister to the Lord Jesus. God fully man, but at times I fear, at times I fear we have this idea that it is the Son of God who inhabits this body, right? And, and, and the man is doing things as the Son of God, no soul. No, friends, he is fully God, fully man. Yes, we affirm it. 
two distinct natures in one person. During his time of humiliation on the earth, again, let me repeat it, he does not exercise his divine prerogatives. He lives as a man. And he lives in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Why does this matter? Well, I can't, I can't tell you how much this matters to me as a man, as a human being. Why does this matter? Well, we have it stated for us so clearly in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Is that encouraging to you? It's unbelievably encouraging to me. Yet without sin, true enough, he knows nothing of inclination to sin internally because he wasn't born with a fallen human nature. But he has a human nature. And he knows what it is to live in a fallen world. And he knows what weariness is. And he knows what opposition is. And he knows what loss is. And he knows what frustration is. What do we read on in that text? Let us then with confidence draw near. Oh, friends, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what it is like to live in a fallen world. He knows what it is like to undergo temptation. Face Betrayal, encounter injustice, suffer abandonment, experience exhaustion, lose a loved one. He knows, and he is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, therefore confidently, confidently, boldly, expectantly, as the people of God, we can draw near to the throne of grace. You know, do you need, do you need forgiveness? Maybe, you know, the Lord's Supper was a little too close to home. We were called to examine our hearts, and we didn't really like what we saw there and just kind of sped over that? Do you, do you need forgiveness? You're in the, the clutches of habitual sin? Just on and on and on. Same old thing. On it goes. Last night, yeah, bitterness, anger got the better of you. Envy. Yeah, crazy imagination. You've blown it. You feel like you've blown it. You've done this. You've done that. You failed to do this. You failed to do that. Are you in need of forgiveness? Oh, draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus offers endless, bottomless, measureless forgiveness. Oh, Jesus declares that his blood washes away every stain. As the hymn writer so eloquently put it, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Do you need forgiveness? Draw near to the throne of grace. There is a great high priest waiting to welcome you.
Do you need love? You don't feel very loved this day. You don't feel very loved this past week. Do you need someone who loves you, not on the basis of anything you've ever done or could ever do, who will love you without bringing, factoring in merit or anything you deserve or any obedience on your part? No, draw near to the throne of grace. And there we find a great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who shows us what it is to become one with him, he who is the beloved one, and therefore enter into and enjoy that unchanging, unwavering, unalterable love of God. Are you longing for peace? You just want to be able to turn this whole COVID-19 mess over to somebody. You want to be able to turn your fears and worries and problems and uncertainties and anxieties over to someone else. Someone who is infinitely wise. Someone who is infinitely powerful. And someone who is infinitely good. And Jesus alone can satisfy our longing for peace. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. He sympathizes with us. Just look at him there in the wilderness, tempted of the devil. And therefore, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Four glimpses of Jesus this day. Did you get them all? He is the last Adam. Why does it matter? Because by his one act of obedience the many will be made righteous. He is the true Israel. Why does it matter? Because if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why does it matter? It means we can run with endurance because he's shown us how to do it. We fix our gaze upon the joy that is set before us and the promises of God. And Jesus is the great high priest. Why does it matter? Because he sympathizes with us. And therefore, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace in our hour of need. And we will find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But better far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. There's another old one. Beautiful, isn't it? And the hymn that we've made, that stanza of that hymn that we've made our objective these Sundays, here it is again as we conclude. There is a name I love to hear. I love to speak its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Our Heavenly Father, may the name of Jesus indeed be sweet to us this day. May you take what we have considered from your word and plant it deep within our hearts, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. And may this abound for our good and for your glory. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together. On the altar of our praise.
let there be no higher name Jesus Son of God you lay down your perfect life you are the sacrifice Jesus Son of God you are Jesus Son of God you 
trust you. We believe every word that you've said, you're true to your word. Your promises are true. Father, help us run the, run the race in your strength. In the help of your spirit, help us to be faithful, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, go in peace. Keep running, keep running, be faithful.